Welcome to Offshoot, the Fident Capital podcast with host Kevin Choquette. Offshoot is a curiosity-driven conversation that features a wide range of real estate and business professionals. In each episode, we unpack the knowledge, vantage point, and domain expertise of our guests. Then we move beyond the facts and figures and dive into the personal habits and mindset which allow them to be high performers in their respective field. This podcast's objective is simple supporting entrepreneurs, fostering relationships, and uncovering meaningful conversations that positively impact business. Hello, gentle listener. Thank you for joining episode six of Offshoot. Today, I bring a longtime friend and acquaintance, Andrew Jobst, onto the show. Andrew's a principal of HG Capital, who's got a ton of wisdom to share. Within this episode, we touch on a wide array of topics, including the wall of capital that's in the market and the implications for real estate, the fact that capital is not on the sidelines because of the COVID-19 pandemic, the idea that there is no real estate market, but only a basket of discrete deals that the media likes to call the market. Deals are all case by case. We also explore the space that HG plays within and why those smaller equity checks and their smaller platform represent a vibrant strategy. Andrew explores COVID-19 and describes it as a grand natural experiment that catalyzed and accelerated a wide array of changes in the marketplace and in our society. I agree. Uh, And we also explore incentives as a central tenant of any partnership and the difference maker in structuring deals for the best outcomes and creating alignment. And I'll, I'll end with this final notion of uh, any prospective uh, venture partner of HG's being able to answer the question of why do you like this deal right now, which I think is a wonderful piece of advice for anybody who's pitching to equity to be able to sort of take in and, and be able to respond to. I hope you enjoyed the episode and uh, thanks for taking the time to listen to the conversation with Andrew and I. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to my conversation with Andrew Jobst, a partner at HG Capital, a private equity firm based in Menlo Park, California. Since 1995, HG Capital has specialized in providing joint venture equity for value-add and opportunistic real estate investments throughout the Western U.S. Uniquely, they typically invest $8 million and less per transaction. That stance reflects a very deliberate and strategic effort to place equity into a portion of the market with less buying pressure. That notion to buy where others are not has proven very successful over the firm's 25-year history. Andrew is unquestionably one of the most intelligent and highly educated guys I engage with on a recurring basis. He's involved in all aspects of the fund's operation, including originations, joint venture negotiations, and asset management and disposition. Since joining the company in 1997, he's structured over 100 investments with a completed value in excess of $2 billion. He's insatiably curious, very thoughtful, and both possesses and seeks knowledge from a wide array of subjects. Interestingly, his formal education was not the traditional foundation for a career in real estate, as he holds a BS in biology, a BA in economics, and a master's in engineering, economic systems, and operations research, all from Stanford University. Andrew, thank you for taking the time and welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, 
My pleasure. Um, to get us started, can you just tell me a bit about yourself and HG Capital? Uh, yeah, so I, I grew up in Northern California, um, ended up going to school relatively close to home. Um, and, you know, candidly, I, I never expected to get into real estate, um, but uh, Stanford has a, what's called a co-terminal degree program, which allows you to, you know, stay for an extra year and get a master's. And, you know, my, my predilection is generally to go, you know, into math um, and, and sort of that, that side of my brain seems to work better than the other side. And so I found myself, uh, you know, in the program that you described, um, which is now called management science and engineering, which is, uh, you know, less of a mouthful. Um, and frankly, I needed, uh, I needed to earn some money, uh, for that fifth year. So, uh, I found, uh, an internship, uh, at a company that happened to be close to where I lived at the time. And, uh, ended up uh, you know, as an intern at HG Capital in you know '97 as I was finishing uh, my my education, and you know that led me uh, into real estate, and I, I knew nothing of real estate at the time, so uh, it was you know very much a um, education by fire effectively, and uh, I didn't think that I would um, you know end up in real estate after I started there. Um, ended up going through the interview process for you know, management consulting and uh, accepted a job offer and cashed the bonus check and thought that I was going to go into that you know, part of the world. And at the time, uh, HG was you know, relatively early and they were looking for somebody else permanently. And while I didn't have really the experience to you know, start um, at the level that they thought they wanted, we had effectively a five or six month interview process. And so they knew who I was and I had a sense of, you know, who they were and um, what they stood for. And so ultimately I, I made the decision, uh, which was difficult at the time um, to essentially tell the consulting firm that uh, I found a different offer and I was going to, to stay with uh, HG and, um, you know, send them back the bonus check and apologized and, um, yeah, it was a difficult thing for somebody at that stage of, of you know, essentially the start of my career to, to you know, turn down a job after I had accepted it. Uh, but ultimately, uh, here I am 20 plus years later, I think it was the right decision. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what about HG? What can you tell the listeners about the firm and you know, where, what you guys are, uh, are about? So I think probably the best way to describe it is um, to give just a little bit of the history um, so the, the firm is actually a successor company to, uh, my partner Henry's father's business that was started in the UK, uh, just after world war II in the forties. And, you know, he, you know, started a real estate business that ultimately had, you know, a couple hundred employees, I think at the peak, uh, but they had, you know, all aspects of real estate that they focused on. They, uh, you know, they owned a home building company, they had a construction company, uh, they built for themselves, they built for third parties. Um, you know, in the morning, they might be underwriting an industrial development in the afternoon, they might be thinking about, you know, a residential subdivision. And so they focused geographically, uh, but they were very flexible with respect to the opportunities that they took advantage of. Um, and that served, uh, you know, Henry's father and their business quite well for decades. And in the 70s, the family decided to you know, leave the UK um, and of all places, they picked Northern California. And, you know, 
one of the main reasons that they chose Northern California is the area that they were comfortable with in the UK or, or the, they were most familiar with in the UK uh, was an area that was heavily influenced by technology. And so, you know, Henry's father, you know, packed their bags and uh, moved to another area that had, you know, heavy influence from technology in Northern California. And, you know, for a long time, the family effectively was, was just investing their own capital. And rather than replicate the business they had in the UK, they made a conscious decision to you know, use their knowledge uh, to invest with developers. Um, you know, understanding that real estate is a very local business, um, you know, that was a more effective way to deploy their capital. It was you know, to find people that understood their market niches, to understand their markets, uh, and that were experts in their product type. And you know, there was a good marriage of the family capital with local developers. And because they had that focus on uh, smaller transactions, because they had the you know knowledge in both commercial property types as well as residential, uh, it just flowed into, you know, that kind of strategy. And uh, with the funds, that's the same strategy we have today. So uh, we still focus on smaller deals. Uh, we still uh, are very flexible with respect to product type. So we will invest in residential, we will invest in commercial. Um, and we, you know, are not, you know, moving back over to the GP side. So we often see folks that, um, you know, they will invest with third parties, uh, but they will also, you know, serve as their own GP. Uh, and that's just not a direction that, that we, we take. So, you know, the firm, you know, essentially, you know, morphed over time. You know, we kind of joke that we're a, uh, you know, 50 plus year old startup company. Um, but, you know, every deal is, is essentially a new venture. Um, but, you know, how we chose our strategy really stems from, you know, those original roots uh, in the UK where, um, you know, you, you recognize that real estate is not some uniform uh, blob of things to invest in, but you know, every deal has its own uh, unique attributes that, you know, you need to understand and, you know, find a way to, you know, generate the best profit that you can from the deals. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you and I've known each other for you know, probably 15 plus years at this point. Um, you know, one of the things I enjoy about HG Capital is <clears throat> the fact that you will consider smaller investments. And, you know, from my vantage point in the industry, that is a scarce commodity that the bulk of investors that I can reach out to and speak to uh, for JV equity are going to have a pretty hard floor at 10 million, if not 15 or 20, um, as kind of this is as low as we'll go. And to do 10 million, it probably needs to be fairly compelling. Um, you know, we could probably drill on just this for quite some time, but w what is it aside from perhaps like that historical um, experience base of kind of smaller private deals that the you know, predecessor company was executing on its on its own account. What is it that has kept you guys in that smaller investment size? So there's a couple of answers to this question. Um, one is that you know capital markets have arranged themselves in ways where you know most of the funds end up in you know you know very sort of large markets, effectively you know, you know multi billion dollar funds. 
Uh, and just from an efficiency standpoint, it's difficult to deploy that kind of capital doing it, uh, you know, five million at a time. So, you know, number one, in the bigger transactions, there's just a lot of people chasing. Um, and frankly, there's you know, fewer uh, opportunities there. So, you know, one is just, you know, the capital structure is just far more competitive at the bigger deal size. Um, but the second thing, and this is pretty important, is, you know, this, you know, grew out of, um, you know, internal capital being deployed into real estate. And if you just, you know, next time you go on an airplane, which may be a little while, um, look out of the window and ask yourself how many deals below you um, are fitting for 10 million of equity and up. And the answer is not as many as deals that need, you know, less than 10 million of equity. So from our perspective, because we're not a volume shop and we're looking for the best returns that possible, um, it's just a far more inefficient space. Um, I mean, the challenges are that, you know, it takes just as much time to underwrite, you know, $5 million investment than it does to underwrite a $20 million investment. Um, so, you know, again, naturally, you know, a lot of the competition gravitates toward those bigger deals because it's a more efficient way for them to operate. Uh, but for us, you know, yeah, we suffer from an efficiency standpoint, but we think we make it up from a return standpoint. And because, you know, we're heavy investors, uh, you know, in the vehicles, uh, it's something that, uh, you know, we want to stay in that space. Yeah, agreed. And, and, uh, when you when you look at these, uh, I mean, you and I've talked about it, and I think you may have some stats on it. But you know, go let's go back up to thirty five thousand feet or whatever our cruising altitude is, and look down. Uh, I don't, I can't quote them off the top of my head, but it's it, it's a relatively small fraction of the total of commercial real estate assets that are over fifty thousand square feet, which is where you're going to start to get capitalization in total that would support kind of ten million dollar and above. JV equity. Do you have any uh, like re reference points as far as the data in terms of how many more targets you might have as a smaller LP investor than those larger shops? Gosh, I, I looked years ago, I took a look at CoStar and I just kind of broke it down broadly um, by, you know, deals that were 20 million and less versus 20 million and more of total asset value. Um, and I think the number was something like 95% of the assets right. that were listed for sale were, were, you know, 20 million or below. So it, there's a huge number of real estate transactions that are smaller, just enormous. Um, and, you know, I don't know if we'll get into it or not, but, you know, it's one of the reasons that we, you know, stick to our current structure, which is, you know, relying on third party GPs to, to find the transactions. Uh, because candidly, when you have that, volume of smaller deals uh, that are possible out there, um, you want to cast a wide net uh, in order to try to pick off the ones that you find most attractive. But yeah, to, to answer your question, it's, um, it's enormous. It's enormous. And we've had people ask us in the past, you know, why we haven't grown bigger. And the answer is simple, which is, then we're just going to be competing with everybody else. Um, and we prefer to be in a space where we feel like there's there's some inefficiency remaining. Yeah, and I, I can, I mean, I guess to put a point on it, I, I see the space that HG occupies as really vibrant. I think the the power, uh, the buyer's market that you are standing in is um, 
really strong. I mean, you would have seen that over all the years where, you know, you contemplate a two, three, four, six, eight million dollar JV equity investment. You you may be one of the only bidders, the only bidder, or or or, or maybe there's three other bidders, which would be kind of surprising. Um, it's a great spot to be. So so we'll get back into that fund stuff, I think. But what's happening in the business right now? What are you guys seeing? You know, we just came off an election. We're obviously whatever inning you want to call it in COVID-19, but, um, you know, what, what are you guys seeing? What challenges are you seeing? What's happening in the business today? Um, I think the biggest thing that we're seeing today is just, um, there's just a lot of capital out there. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, people searching for yield and that has made, uh, it fairly challenging, frankly, to, to find, uh, investments simply because, um, you know, capital is, is freely flowing. And, you know, while it's true that, that sources of organized capital um, rarely go below that $10 million mark, there are, um, there are private individuals that will invest. And so, you know, developers will oftentimes, um, you know, find, uh, you know, a syndicate of, of investors to, to make their deals happen. But, but from a very big picture standpoint, I think a lot of people, you know, there's a lot of this discussion about, you know, working from home, not working from home, um, you know, what's going to happen with, you know, major cities, uh, you know, San Francisco and New York and, you know, are ever, is everybody going to work remotely forever and order all their groceries online forever and never leave their living rooms? I, I don't know. But, um, you know, right now, I think there's, um, I guess the best way to put it is, I, I feel like we're playing on borrowed time a bit. Um, you know, we've got government support and, you know, here we are on the 29th of December and uh, maybe we're going to get a bit more government support coming out. And so a lot of the, the problems with respect to employment um, and, you know, whatever business destruction occurred during the pandemic uh, are being papered over for now. Um, so I, I think there's a little bit of uh, maybe misplaced comfort, uh, I would say. Um, and so, you know, we haven't seen values correct the way we have in prior downturns. Um, and we may not. Um, but, you know, we do think that there's still opportunity if you can uh, be patient and pick your spots. And, you know, the space that we in particular focus on are, uh, you know, value added and opportunistic deals, which um, you know, most people understand what that means, but what it effectively means is it's not yet a, you know, clean and polished asset with cash flow, right? There's something wrong with it. Uh, something that where it's not performing, uh, you know, up to where it should, or it's not yet built. So, you know, we think that if there's, uh, you know, something wrong with an asset, you can ultimately, um, you know, build it and create that value. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, where we're seeing this, uh, I think people have referred to it as a wall of capital, where this wall of capital is having the most impact is on, you know, the finished product, effectively, the, the completed asset and the yields going lower and lower and lower. So, you know, where are we today? Um, it's a very good question. You know, I think, you know, you start get, when you start saying, well, where are we today? At, uh, you know, I think oftentimes people confuse where we are today with where they think we're going. Um, and so, you know, both of those, you know, intertwine in unpredictable ways. So where I think we are today uh, is a period of complacency with, you know, people searching for yield. Um, where we actually are today? Hell, I don't know. We'll find out in a few years. Right. Well, um, you know, there's been this whole alphabet thing on the recovery and, 
you know, it's it's at at some level this whole thing is even questionable in in terms of its traditional recession dynamics and all of that. But uh, certainly the stock market I got wrong. I thought we'd retest the bottom, and the whole notion of kind of a V-shaped recovery was uh, nonsensical uh, as it pertains to publicly traded equities. I was 100% wrong. I've been wrong on a lot of things uh, as it pertains to pandemic prognostication. What do you think might be coming? I mean, you, you referred to this like the wall of capital and, and a, a whole bunch of liquidity s- searching for yield. Do you think that real estate markets might um, follow a trajectory that's not too dissimilar to what has, <coughs> has happened um, in the stock market, which is to say perhaps you know capital will be on the sidelines for a short period of time, and then as soon as there's – I don't know that this one's going to put in a floor like – previous or the great recession i should say and then we'll see a big run-up but do, do you think that what do you think i mean yeah i i, I guess I, I don't think capital is on the sidelines um yeah. you know the in the past you know there were uh in cycles there were you know periods of time where there was you know very few people bidding on assets um you know post.com in the bay area um you know people people there was you know I think it was in you know 2000 after the dot com you know bubble burst, you know people would say oh, there's so much office it's going to take a decade to to absorb it all. Well, it was absorbed in I don't know something like five years, um, but you know there was that point in time where everybody was you know very concerned, and so there were just much fewer bidders and prices you know got down uh, you know to to levels where you could you know take some perceived risk and, and get a pretty healthy return if it worked similar story in the, you know, post housing bubble, uh, environment, uh, you know, prices got to a point where, um, you know, your downside was very limited, uh, and there was meaningful upside, um, you know, where we are today, you know, you have, you know, certain product types, um, you know, some of which we don't, we don't play in, um, but, you know, take hotels for an example, um, you know, hotel debt, uh, there's just a ton of capital that thinks, oh boy, I can, I can now, you know, buy some assets cheap. I can buy some distressed debt. And, you know, I've heard stories of, you know, some of this debt trading at still 90 cents on the dollar. And these are businesses that today aren't generating any cash flow or any income. And there's a real question as to whether, you know, you know, they're going to be uh, anywhere close to where they were before. So, you know, I don't know. Um, but, but it seems like today, you know, that capital hasn't left. I I think what's going to happen is it's going to be, you know, deal by deal and market by market, um, you know, more than ever before. And there'll be broad trends, but, uh, I don't think it's going to be, uh, a situation where, uh, you could just say, well, uh, I don't know, just office is in trouble. So just buy office. Um, uh, or, or, you know, hotels are in trouble. So, you know, their prices are going to go down. So just buy hotels and, and enjoy that ride up. Uh, I think there are some things that ha- are going to be different post pandemic than pre pandemic and, you know, consequently affect real estate in ways that is unpredictable. So, um, will all office be down forever? No, of course not. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, the higher quality office is going to do better than lower quality office. Um, I think, you know, and we'll probably get into this, but, you know, urban versus suburban, 
um, you know, retail is suffering um, and there's going to be needs-based retail and experiential retail, and then there's going to be everything else. Um, and then there's going to be, you know, hotel and, and hotels focused on business travel, I think are going to do worse. Um, so anyway, I, I think it's, you know, I think where we are is that, you know, prices haven't corrected because all this capital is chasing for yield. And I think, you know, when we look forward five years from now, I think there are definitely going to be winners. There's going to be assets that recover strongly and there are going to be losers. There are going to be assets that people thought would recover and they just didn't. Uh, and it's just hard to predict, you know, what, what's going to happen. Well, I agree with you on this notion of <clears throat> it being kind of a case by case assessment uh, in, in terms of the merits of an investment. But I think there's something else potentially at play, which is um, has actually been a benefit to, to my business, which is there's a pretty wide dispersion of uh, opinions and viewpoints on assets and, and trajectories. I mean, take the example you gave of, uh, you know, multi or sorry, uh, hospitality paper, whether it's distressed or not, or maybe it's pre-distressed and there's some sort of a, uh, you know, f uh, I'm looking for the word I can't find right now, but uh, they've postponed the, the payments, right? Deferment. I, I yeah, the uh, the colloquialism is uh, they've kicked the can. Right, they've kicked the can. They're deferring their their collections of the debt payments, and maybe it's on the market in that scenario. Uh, you know, I've talked to um, Eric Boyd on this podcast not so long ago, and their view is, you know, with the amount of uncertainty uh, on an asset to get back to even break even, and the time period under which it, that needs to happen those assets again case by case and it will certainly matter on what flag is it full serve is it limited serve is it select serve all of that matters but their view is plus or minus it needs to be 65 cents on the dollar the dollar being call it january 2020 that viewpoint obviously is not shared by the people who are paying 90 cents and that's the one thing that i think may uh, and, and I'll go back to your thing and say, yeah, I also don't know where we are. And, and in two years, we'll know exactly where we were. But the one thing that may happen here is that dispersion of opinion over value and whether or not now is a good time to buy will eventually consolidate. And then I think the, the wall of capital that you're talking about will well and truly flow because it will be clear that uh, the, tr the trend is in, right? And if you still have dollars to get out, uh, you know, perhaps again, you still need your investment discretion and case by case will always be the, 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 uh, the, the mandate. But I do feel like right now there's people who would say, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that for this price. And, and so there's some bid ask spread, but, but there are other people on the same asset who are willing to pay. So perhaps we'll see a consolidation of opinion and a consolidation of sentiment because at the moment, even in just the lending community, um, you know, we've got some lenders pencils down. We're not interested to make any new, for example, construction loans in the remainder of 2020. We're going to wait to see what happens with the CDC and these eviction moratoriums and you know things like that, where others are, are absolutely thinking, Hey, cap rates are going to compress. I've got a great exit in the agency debt let's just lean in and make aggressive construction loans. So uh, I don't know if you're seeing that, but I definitely see this divergence of opinions across the, the sort of commercial investment and, and lending marketplace. I think you're right. Um, there's, there's definitely different opinions. I, I think the, the interesting thing for me is, you know, one of the things that I've, I've learned to be true 
over you know the first part of my career is that the most dangerous and we've probably talked about this before but the, the most dangerous phrase in investing is that it's different this time right and so or a paradigm shift or it's a paradigm shift yes yeah. and so i think what we're seeing now is um you know all the capital providers out there uh, or not all of them, but but uh, enough enough to keep the market uh, afloat um, are effectively saying it's not different this time; it's just the same. And so, you know, office markets will recover, uh, hotel markets will recover, uh, retail, you know, to the extent there's an ability to recover, it it, it will go back to the the prior trend line. Um, and so, I think there's a lot of people who are making that bet that it's not different this time; that there's there's going to be a light at the end of the pandemic tunnel and we're going to recover. Um, and I, I'm sympathetic to that again, because I've always, you know, thought that that was a dangerous phrase to say that it is going to be different this time, but this was a, this was a grand, you know, natural experiment, if you will. Um, everybody was forced, you know, to you know, shop from home, uh, work from home if they could, um, you know, do things differently than they had before and, and take advantage of a lot of tools and technology that existed but hadn't been widely used. And so uh, I think probably the, the opinion that I, I subscribe to the most is that um, the pandemic has essentially accelerated, you know, technology-driven trends that existed pre-pandemic, um, but, you know, maybe hadn't been, uh, you know, as broadly spread so, you know, I, I think, yeah, it's not different this time, but I think if you, you know, kind of step back and, and you know, take a kind of a different view and say, well, you know, what trends were, um, what trends were, were, you know, in existence before um, and, you know, likely accelerated through the pandemic and how does that affect real estate? And in some cases, um, it's going to affect real estate so much that, that, you know, it is going to be different in terms of certain assets just not recovering. Um, and that's the thing that, that gives us pause is, you know, just again, that attitude of, um, you know, buy things that are out of favor because it will recover. It just doesn't feel as comfortable this time. Um, so, you know, our focus is on things that are, um, you know, benefiting from, you know, some of the trends that are emerging, uh, you know, from the pandemic, but existed, you know, before the pandemic. Um, and, you know, at some point, maybe we'll dip our toe in the water of things that were more affected, but I don't think we're really going to see how those product types recover until sometime, you know, after the vaccine is out and the case counts are down and people get back to normal life. Then I think we'll start to have a better sense of what the real world is going to look like. Well, look, we'll come back to other things that I think are different now. Um, but since you just mentioned, you know, some of the, or, alluded to there's certain sectors, certain uh, investment opportunities that you guys are finding of interest today. What are those? Where do you see what markets, what assets, why are you pursuing those? So I want to differentiate between, um, you know, assets that are highly priced uh, and where we think there's opportunity. So, you know, for us, um, you know, if I say, yeah, we, we, I like, I like workforce housing. Um, well, it's very highly priced. Well, of course it is, um, because I think a lot of people see it as a, a safe product type. But when we're looking at you know investment opportunities, we're always looking for some 
you know, unique aspect to a transaction. And it's really um, trying to position ourselves to be in markets that are going to be less affected um, or in, in markets that are, you know, likely to hold up in a, in a period of disruption. And so, you know, for us, the, the kind of the three product types that I would say are top of the list for us uh, are, you know, industrial, multifamily and storage. Um, it doesn't mean that we won't invest in a residential or in a, in a retail deal, excuse me, tomorrow. Um, it doesn't mean that we won't find an interesting office investment, you know, the day after that. Um, but from a top-down perspective, you know, those are the product types that we see as, um, I don't want to say being, you know, resistant to, you know, a downturn. Uh, but those are the product types that I think are, um, you know, going to be you know, stable through a rough patch. Um, and, and that's, you know, what you need to expect at this point is that there's going to be a rough patch. You always have to expect there's going to be a rough patch. I mean, you know, probably one of the key questions we ask ourselves on any investment is, you know, do I want to hold this asset through a downturn? You know, if it's a deal that's a race to the exit, that just doesn't feel very comfortable right now. Um, but with industrial and storage and, and multifamily, you know, you have, you know, tailwinds with respect to uh, e-commerce for industrial uh, and you have, you know, generally lack of development when it comes to multifamily and, and the desire for folks to, to you know, live somewhere out of, uh, out of the rain and snow. Um, so, you know, multifamily is something where there's going to be steady demand. It's just a question of price and you've got multi-tenant. So you have protection against one tenant failing. Uh, and then storage, uh, which is a bit more of an operating business, but similar to multifamily, you have, uh, you know, hundreds of tenants at an individual you know property. So, your risk that all of them leave on the same day is close to zero. So, you know, those are the three property types that I would say we probably like the most. But we're very uh, opportunistic. You know, if a deal comes about that is uh, something else, uh, we're very happy to take a look at it. And then, <clears throat> I know you guys are, you know, Western U.S. is the focus. If you were to think primary, secondary tertiary markets, whether it's those three asset classes or, you know, something a bit less down the middle of the, the plate. Um, how do you look at the, the different tiers of markets? Where would you guys invest? So primary markets oftentimes are just, you know, too expensive, you know, the asset, you know, prices are too high. So, you know, if you're going to go into, you know, San Francisco, uh, or, um, you know, Manhattan as a, as an example in the geography that's out of our geography, the, the, cost of things is just, you know, way outside of the typical $5 million, you know, check that we need. Um, and when you go into tertiary markets, you know, things that are, are too far out, um, you have, you know, two questions that are sometimes difficult to answer. That is, you know, one is where is the demand coming from to use the real estate that you own? And the second is who's going to buy this when you're done and you want to sell it? Um, and there's just there's fewer people that are willing to own assets in you know what I would call true tertiary markets. Um, so we tend to focus on secondary markets. Uh, we will move into tertiary if it's something that is still within striking distance of a major job center. Um, but you know we we tend to focus um, in probably that you know kind of first ring outside of uh, you know a major job center. And then what about development and or? Entitlement risk is that something that HG will consider? Uh, yes, to development, uh, entitlement is more difficult. We have done entitlement in the past, um, and you know the issue with entitlement is uh, it can be a political process uh, and and quite risky. Um, and 
you know, the, it's a, it's a catch 22, you know, it's the, the, the classic issue of, um, you know, something that is that difficult, uh, tends to come with it, you know, some meaningful value creation. So, you know, you, you can, uh, you know, go into an entitlement project, uh, in a place like Texas, and there's really not much value creation there because the barriers to getting something approved, um, you know, it doesn't really exist. Uh, and then there's getting entitlement in California, which can be quite difficult, uh, even if uh, you're not doing anything that's very controversial. Um, but the upside in California is if you go through that process, you know, there's typically some meaningful value created, you know, once you get to uh, an approved project. Um, but to answer your question, the answer is yes to both of those. Um, but I would say, you know, nine times out of 10, um, that I will, we'll, we'll do, you know, say nine development deals for every one entitlement deal. There you go. Yeah, that's a good, good ratio. Going back to, um, this notion of, of what is different now and, you know, paradigm shifts and all of that. Um, I have similar trepidation when, you know, if, for me, if I'm going up an elevator and somebody says, well, it's, you know, paradigm shifts, I'm like, okay, ring the bell that we're at the top <laughs> of the cycle. Um, but I feel like the monetary policy that, uh, is afoot, the, the ballooning of the fed balance sheet, I think they've added 3 trillion, um, you know, t- of their ass to their assets, uh, or I guess liabilities. Um, and you know, we've put now, I guess with the latest stimulus, it'll be 4 trillion of, uh, fiscal response, uh, marry that with what you were just calling the wall of capital that has already for a long time been in search of yield. Uh, marry that to the fact that the 10 years at 0.95 up from, I think, a low of 0.55 or thereabouts, um, yields are compressed, uh, severely compressed. And I, I wonder what your thinking is as it pertains to those dynamics and price and yield and you know spreads between the risk-free rate and real estate and you know, kind of the implications to, to me there's there are some pieces on the board that you could interpret as being uh fairly bullish for asset appreciation but um you know that that is not as open-ended a question as i would like so you know when you look at monetary policy when you look at the wall of capital when you look at the mandate for whether it's life companies or pension funds to produce reliable yield, you know, where, where does, where does all the money go now? Now there's even more of it out there and it, it's not going to get it in any of the bond markets. So what's, what's, what's next? Boy, if I had a, a, an answer that I was confident in, um, I would probably already have made enough money to be living on a beach. Um, so the, one of the things that has been, uh, Kind of a challenge for me to to you know really get my my head around is you know the conventional wisdom is that you know the fed drives interest rates um and i've heard some fairly compelling arguments from people that kind of flip that on its head and say no no the fed doesn't drive interest rates the fed reacts to you know a natural demand for capital um and so you know the idea is you know if i can you know, try to summarize, you know, somebody else's, uh, you know, thoughts succinctly. Um, if the Fed was too loose, then inflation should emerge. Um, but the fact that it hasn't yet 
um of course you know notwithstanding you know the stock market and capital appreciation and um you know other you know inflated asset values you know art and collectibles and maybe precious metals um you know the the idea that you know the fed can um you know dictate demand for capital by you know lowering or raising rates i don't know i don't know if that's true or not um so you know i look at it um and and we kind of look at it more in terms of um you know the thing that that hasn't emerged um you know higher yields inflation uh and could emerge you know how does that impact you know any particular deal you know that we're invested in um and so you know the the answer really is well you want to be in product types that that perform well in those kinds of environments um and you know structure yourself conservatively so it doesn't whack you but and when I you don't... say higher yields do you mean higher interest rates yes sorry yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I look at it, um, you know, more from a policy policy perspective and you say, OK, well, we're, we we're, we have so much debt, you know, both, uh, you know, corporate balance sheets and, uh, you know, we have you know, huge amounts of debt, um, you know, on the, uh, the government balance sheet, if you will. And I don't see that going away. I think, you know, deficits are going to continue to rise uh, just based on demographics alone. Uh, and the demographic story is one that, that also bleeds through to, you know, the demand for yield as opposed to, you know, the, the demand to take risk on, on future cash flows. So I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I think that eventually um, we're going to, and I'm going to use the, the royal we in terms of, you know, the U.S., they're going to have to monetize their debt. There's just going to be too much pressure to do so uh, in various ways. And um and that is going to uh, you know ultimately uh i think you know lead to inflation um i just don't know when you know are well, we uh, i i'm already wondering if we're seeing inflation like why is the stock market the, the dow's at almost 31,000 like valuations are all-time highs if you look at uh, tables of historic you know slice and dice uh percentile Almost everything's at the hundredth percentile in terms of historic valuations. So, why is that? Because we have high confidence in earnings, because we believe that everything's going to come through this totally unscathed. I, I am questioning whether or not we're already seeing the the, the impacts of inflation, which is asset inflation, right? Milk, cheese, dairy, you know, the the petro- petroleum. I don't know that that's where it's going to happen. I think it's, and this goes to the the overused thing of a K-shaped recovery, but <clears throat> I feel like there's already enough capital pressure that assets are going to go up. And I don't know that the Fed has a lot to to do in terms of policy response because of your point. A, they need to monetize the debt, uh, you know, sort of debase the dollar. And B, any real movement in inflation rates, uh, sorry, in interest rates, I think could actually damage whatever kind of you know i don't know if we're in a recovery right now or not because of all of the stimulus but um i'm wondering you know is inflation already here like are the stock prices up because of expectations of inflation not necessarily improvements in performance and all-time high valuations 
so one of the big issues is you know just what you noted which is you know higher interest rates because of how much debt is on corporate balance sheets is going to dramatically impact you know businesses and and their income levels and i think we saw that you know i forget where it was a couple of years ago where they started to raise rates and you know the markets didn't like that very much so there's going to be this this real push and pull of trying to to quote unquote normalize things uh, but because of uh, normalized rates, but because of how much debt is out there in existence, it's going to impact any recovery that, that there might be. So I don't know. I think, I think the other thing that we need to be careful about is um, prices of everything are set on the margin. And so you can talk about the stock market um, you know, going up and up and up and up. But at a certain point in time, you know, the value of a company is dictated by, you know, the last 1% of the stock that is traded. Um, and so if you just have a little bit of uh, confidence, you know, kind of leaving the balloon, uh, you could see, you know, values come back to earth on some of these high flying stocks, you know, relatively quickly, especially those that don't have any, um, uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know, this fancy thing called income. Um, <laughs> but but eventually it comes back down to earth. You know the question is you know what happens um, when when prices come back down to earth. You know does this capital crawl back into its hole or does it just try to find yield elsewhere? Um, and I think that's that's a, a difficult question to answer. I, I think that there is, you know, I, I, I keep coming back to demographics. Um, you know you have baby boom generation, you know, getting you know older. Um, and they're looking for fixed income. They're looking for yield. You know, you've got pension funds globally that are all looking for yield. And where are they going to find it? They're not finding it in sovereign debt anymore. Uh, and a lot of, you know, these countries simply can't afford to have rates, you know, that much higher. Um, you know, so, you know, when are they going to be able to find an alternative source of yield other than things like real estate and dividend paying stocks? I don't know. I don't know. I'm going to say, I don't know a lot because I don't, my kids ask me sometimes, they go, so how was your day? I say, I don't know. Ask me in five years. That's when I'll know. <laughs> right. When that, when that uh, asset comes full cycle and we're actually realizing our gains or losses. That's, that's exactly right. Well, that's so exactly. that take a slight uh, loop back around to what we were talking about. Cause we're talking about, you know, sort of risk writ large in the in the broader equity markets and and perhaps, you know, how is that going to impact those who are seeking yield in the real estate market? Bring it back to just your day to day at HG and assessing risk. I've had uh, countless conversations with you where I feel like I'm getting a wonderful education because of the kinds of questions that you're asking me and the kinds of concerns that you have around a specific project and well, what about this? What about this? What about this? How do you, when you're assessing, you know, a, a potential investment, how do you think about risk? How do you, uh, and I know that's, you, know, you could probably literally teach a, a master's class at Stanford on it, but <clears throat> how do you think about what's, I, I heard you say, you know, you look for some unique attributes that are defensible, something that isn't in the everyday offering that might be in the marketplace. But beyond that, how do you assess, you know, risk reward and, and whether or not uh, a project is worthy of, of HG's equity capital? So when I started at HG, I was the numbers guy, right? So I did a lot of modeling, um, you know, built a lot of models, you know, did a lot of that kind of work. And um, 
you, you fall into this false sense of security that that kind of the model is uh, the model is driving the decisions, right? And over time, you learn that you know, the models are a nice tool; they can kind of tell you where things might look like. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, it's it's the asset, it's the market, it's the partner, it's the plan um, that all matter. And you know, there are situations where I've run a model and you know come up with uh, a result that doesn't, um, you know, if you just went by the model, you would say, I don't want to make that investment. But in fact, no, it's a, you know, it's an asset that you know, I would want to own personally. And so, you know, those are the deals that, that, you know, we might do that, that the models say, yeah, maybe you don't, um, just because, you know, it's a unique asset in a, in a very strong market. But when you talk about, you know, the risks, you say, okay, well, then what risks does that deal not have? Uh, and what benefits, you know, does it have? that um you know make you sort of make that decision and so you know stepping back and, and kind of thinking about you know each project there are there are really you know two things that matter and and i'll expand it to three but the two things that matter are you know what you paid and what you can sell it for when you're all done right that that's all that matters so you know our most important decisions are you know what to buy and when to sell the uh the the thing that i would say i'm going to break into two pieces is the value and one of the, the parts of the value from a piece of real estate's perspective is the income that you have. Um, and the second is, you know, what yield is the buyer going to expect when they go to sell it? Um, and you can't really control the very last bit, um, but you can try to position yourself so that you have the best chance possible to, you know, have, you know, a strong income. Uh, and and how do you get that point? So number one is you try to make sure that you have you know costs that are you know defensible, uh, and costs that are um, understandable on day one. So if you're going to do ground up development, um, you know it's much more comfortable to have you know fully bid plans and a capable sponsor and a known general contractor and uh, you know a, a, a healthy contingency. Uh, and then from an income perspective you kind of look at, you know, a couple of big pictures, you know, one is you know, who's your audience, how deep is that market? And, you know, why do you think you can have the income at the end of the day that you're underwriting to? Um, and so, you know, those are kind of the, the really big picture, you know, points that you're trying to, you know, understand on any given deal. Um, but then from a, from a risk perspective on any transaction, you're trying to eliminate, you know, the small but catastrophic risks. Um, you know, those are those are. I mean, that's why you do your due diligence. Um, you know, making sure that you're not built on a landfill, and you know, making sure that you know you have the proper entitlements for what it is that you're trying to do. Um, you know, the things that that you can understand, you 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 need to understand. Um, and then from a from a you know, market perspective, it. it often comes down and I'm surprised how infrequently I hear it. I often, I hear people talk all the time about, you know, rates and, and debts and spreads and cap rates and all this stuff. But I much less frequently hear people talk about just the simple, you know, supply and demand. Um, and so, you know, from our standpoint, when we think about, you know, what makes a deal attractive, it, it, number one, you have to, you know, eliminate all those small but catastrophic risks. You have to understand your, your costs. Uh, you have to make sure that, you know, if, if market rents didn't move today, that you're actually developing something to uh, an income that should give you value meaningfully in excess of your cost. Um, but, you know, the big thing is, 
you want to be in a market that somehow has some supply constraints um, and is a product type that is still in demand. Um, and and I find that you know looking back over time, you know some of the most successful deals that we've had had you know strong demand and and very limited supply. It's just it's it's actually not that complicated. I mean, it's really hard to find those things because oftentimes once people have assets that are in high demand and limited supply, they never want to sell them. Um, but it's um, it's difficult, you know, to to find all of that at work. I, I, and I've seen people um, who get, you know, I, I kind of dub it, you know, grass is greenerism. Um, I've seen, you know, developers over time who uh, decide that that it's really hard to find things that kind of fit their uh, metrics in the markets that they know the best, and they start to go to other markets and. In some cases, they do it with great success, tremendous success. And in some cases, uh, I think they may lose sight of the fact that uh, there are already real estate you know, developers and players who have been in those markets for decades and have a very good handle on you know, what the risks are inherent in, in that product type in that market. Um, and you know, the new guy's not going to have the relationships. They're not going to get the look at the right deals. They're not going to really understand the dynamics. And so I think that's where, um, you know, sometimes, you know, risk emerges when people have a feeling that they understand things that they may not have the experience to truly understand, but it all comes back down to that supply and demand. Again, it's, it's, um, you know, sorry, sorry to go back to econ one and one, but when a one one, but that's where I, I found, um, yeah, probably the most success is when that supply demand picture is the strongest. And that style drift you're talking about, I think you see that um, it manifests itself in a lot of different ways and in a lot of different times. In, in fact, to the earlier comment of riding up the elevator and having somebody say, well, it's a paradigm shift. When I see developers start to take on a new asset class um, because they feel like it's a better use of their equity dollars and resources, I similarly get nervous, right? You know, I'll see a multifamily developer who might either go to a, a, a market in the Southeast out of California and, and say, hey, look at the yield on cost. Look at, look at how all of this plays out. And, and I think you're right, may lose sight of the general supply de demand dynamics that would be in place there because of the lack of, of barriers to entry or, or the the lack of difficulty in, in titling and, and building new product, or perhaps see a multifamily developer who suddenly wants to move over to hospitality because he believes that he can uh, develop and operate something that produces a, a nine or 10 yield on cost, but he's never run a, a hotel. He's never managed a hotel management company. He has no idea about the efficiencies of the different floor plates, the room products, how to, you know, put the, uh, the the guts of the the operations in the appropriate places to have an efficient machine that is nested inside of the physical plant uh, I I couldn't agree with you more that uh, the grass is greenerism is is a real risk yeah I mean it's one of the things that I learned you know really early on which is I'm not a special flower there's a lot of people out there who are really smart and really driven and really hardworking. And so, you know, whenever you think that you can just, you know, move into somebody else's territory and, and you know, do really well, um, it, it's very difficult to do that. And this is a, you know, it's a terrible, terrible example, but 
you know, Michael Jordan is, you know, probably the greatest, you know, competitor and, and basketball player of all time. Doesn't mean he can just go play baseball and be an all-star the next day. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he, he did great. He did great. You know, I mean, he's an athlete, but, um, he wasn't as good because look, there were people that specialized in that particular sport and they ended up, uh, they're just better at it because they've been doing it for longer. They've had a focus on it for longer. And so I've, I've had this discussion with some of our better partners who have said, you know, Hey, you know, we really know this market, but what about that market? And, you know, I, I told him, I said, just be careful because recognize that, you know, you guys have, you know, 20 years of experience in, in your particular market and, you know, there are people that have that level of experience in the market you want to go to. Do you think you're going to be better off competing there or, you know, perhaps doing fewer deals over the next year than, than you would like in your current market and, and build your relationships further and look deeper and, and, you know, hunt, uh, more than, than, than shooting, if you will. Um, and again, some people have been very successful uh, being in multiple markets. Um, well, let's let's bring it back to HG though, right? Yeah. Uh, you you and I have had this conversation, and uh, I don't want to talk about any of your investors or any of your funds or anything like that. But uh, you have shared with me in the past that some of your stronger investors have come to you and said, "Hey, why don't you make your funds larger, and why don't you allow me to write you?" this enormous check so you can deploy this magnitude of capital for me. I mean, that that is the same equivalent of grass is greenerism that's being offered to you. Hey, stop doing these small deals. Go do some big deals. I've got a big check for you. And as I understand it, uh, the response, you know, I mean. Well, yeah, the, the, the response is um, that's fine. But, but you know, the reason... Um, the reason we've had success is because of our niche. Uh, and if you start telling us that, you know, if you just all of a sudden say, Oh, you're going to, you're going to do bigger deals. All of a sudden you're talking about, you know, whole different set of, of developers that you need to talk to, um, you know, just different markets that you're going to, you're going to be operating in. And it's just a more competitive landscape. So yeah, we, we've, you know, every once in a while it's tempting um, because we've had people say, oh, you guys have been successful for a while. How come you aren't bigger? Well, you know, maybe maybe our success is because we're not bigger. Um, and some people get it. Um, and it's it's also interesting, you know, just, just generally speaking, you know, when you have, you know, large institutions that just say, well, we, we can't write a check of less than X, you're forcing the fund sizes bigger uh, by doing that. Um, and you know, therefore you're kind of forcing money into these larger and larger vehicles that have to deploy the money into larger and larger assets. So what I would really like to do, and this is all tongue in cheek, of course, but you know, if somebody wants to write me a $50 million check for a $20 million asset, I'm more than happy to sell it. Um, (laughs) but, 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 but that's, but that's kind of, that's kind of where, um, I don't want to say we're, we're heading there, but it's, it's interesting that we, we may be heading there, right. And in some cases where the deals are getting bigger, just because they're, they're getting more expensive. Um, Well, the other question is what business are those funds in? Um, You said at the outset that. Are you an investor or are you an asset manager? That's right. Right. The, the history of HG and, and the current um, ethos is that it's private capital. It's largely HG capital. And so, yeah, I'm sure that there's an incentive for you as fund managers to, to perform. But when 
a large portion of the capital returns are coming to the principles of, of fund management, your incentive and, and your alignment is completely different than someone who's out there raising yet another $1 billion or $2 billion fund with a you know, three-year mandate or even a two-year mandate to get those dollars out. I mean, they it's the classic OPM, other people's money. And uh, the downside for them, as long as they've done the CYA and managed career risk by employing all of the right consultants and pointing all to the right studies, it's it's de minimis, if, if not zero, where when your own capital's at risk, uh, in fact, it's, it's one of uh, someone years and years ago, a, a principal to a debt fund that's based up uh, north of us. I'll leave them nameless because I don't want it to come back to him. But he had said, there's a difference between money and my money. And <laughs> I can't agree more, right? But you guys are in the business of managing, if you will, my money, not money. And I think a lot of the other fund managers are just moving dollars around. And it's not that they're lacking in expertise or that they are failing their fiduciary duties, but it's just a fundamentally different proposition than than being a small, closely held, deeply invested fund. Yeah, that I think that's right. Um, every so often, every so often, you you know talk to a guy that went from managing a small fund to a big fund, and you know they, um, you know, if you get truth serum into them, they'll say. Yeah, I, I really wish we could do smaller deals again, um, but it just doesn't work for them uh, because they're now too big. Um, and so there's it's it's a it's a difficult balance, uh, frankly, because yeah, you know, look if I'm measure if I'm uh, managing a, a billion dollars, um, that's pretty nice fee income. Um, but man, I would hate to have to deploy it, and I would especially have to hate to have to deploy it in a way where. I was really happy with every investment that we made. Right. Well, but look, part of what you guys have done that I think is in a very intelligent response in terms of having s smaller investment mandates, smaller vehicles, uh, is that you've got a small team. I mean, I, how many people are, are part of HG now? Yeah, I mean, there's two partners. There's there's uh, Henry and I, and then uh, we have a CFO, we have an accounting manager, we have uh, an office staff. Um, but you know, people look at that and say, ah, you know, it's small. How do you guys manage it? And the answer is, well, we, we use good professionals. Um, you know, we don't skimp on hiring good counsel and, and good accounting firms. But also people forget that, um, you know, we have a you know, general partner on every deal uh, or a manager of that asset. And, and they're running the day to day. Um, so, yes, you know, we're, we're involved with them, but, um, you know, we're, we're pretty lean. And this, this kind of gets into, you know, what is the right size of an operation? Um, you know, the challenge is, uh, you know, once you get too big, you have to, and we've talked about this too, you got to keep feeding the beast, right? You have to you know, make an investment. And you really don't want to be in a situation where you have to make an investment when it's the wrong time to make an investment. Uh, you, you want to make an investment when you find the right investment um, and you don't want to have to make an investment because, you know, the money is just sitting there and you have a career risk if you don't get it to work. That's just, that's a recipe for disaster. Yeah. And I, and I would also argue the other side of it, which is the small team that has uh, deep expertise and is actively managing the entire portfolio. Um, you're the, the sort of care and feeding that 
that may well extend from that kind of an organizational structure versus the very large funds with lots of, uh, you know, professionals and MBAs and varying degrees of, of tenure and expertise. Um, yeah, you may or may not get a good result. It's a function of how well they're, they're managing that kind of an operation, but it's a, a different animal. Um, well, it's, and ago. it's, and okay, it's sorry to interrupt, but it's also kind of a, it may be a different mandate. And again, I'm not in that space, but, um, you know, if you manage an endowment or a pension fund, um, yeah, of course you want to get good returns, but you also, you know, need to have exposure to, you know, certain asset classes based on the, you know, the, the diversification goals of, you know, your entity. And so, um, yeah, everybody's top quartile. What's the joke? You know, at least half right. funds are top quartile, right. um, and and you want to have you know good competent you know management, and you want to have quality reporting, and you want to have transparency, and you want to have honesty, and all of the things that we all know are important. Um, you know, when you're uh, you know have a duty to to other people's capital, um, but I, I sometimes I get the sense that for a lot of these um, you know larger entities, they just need to have exposure to those markets. Um, and you know, how can they best get exposure with, with a competent manager? Um, but that's a different business, right? That's a, that's a different mandate than, than trying to, you know, get the best risk, risk adjusted returns that you can. Agreed. Um, on this topic though, of teams and, and anyone who's listened to the podcast for a bit will know this question because I've been asking it repeatedly. Um, misfit is, is one of the competitors to Fitbit. I think that's what they were called. And I heard, uh, one of their founders speak at a MIT pre- presentation and it was asked of him, um, do you fear competing technologies? And without missing a beat, he replies, I don't, I don't fear any technology. I, I fear excellent teams. And it, it hit me really uh, quickly and, and hard that, you know, a guy who presumably is at the cutting edge of, of all things tech doesn't actually care about the tech. He cares about the team. So, how do you think about that, either within the context of HG or perhaps even more importantly, you know, the GP who you're entrusting your millions of dollars with on each of these deals? It's a, it's a good question. And I guess I would say that I would slightly modify it by saying what what I focus on really is incentives. Um, because... You know, when Henry's Henry's father, you know, had a home building company. And so, you know, they had, you know, people that were in-house that, um, you know, were land acquisition guys. And so we're in a cyclical business here. Right? You know, let's not, let's not kid ourselves. It hasn't seemed like we had a, we've had a cycle for a while, but, but this is a cyclical business. And so there are times when what you would really want that land acquisition guy is to sit on his hands. Um, and so one of the, the challenges, I think, of having you know, a big team is uh, that, you know, well, as they hate to go back to sports metaphors, but, you know, sh- shooters going to shoot. Um, it's hard to say no to that marginal deal, right? You know, it, it, it's good enough, maybe, but maybe you're heading into a downturn, but you've got the team. And so you're going to be buying, uh, you know, the deal anyway. Um, and, you know, for us, I think the greatest flexibility that you have is the ability to say no. So I know I didn't answer the question that you wanted. Um, you know, when we think about teams, like I said, incentives are, are one of the things that, that matter. Um, and so if the, 
in it's the developers thinking about things the same way that we are, which is, you know, we're trying to create value for, for themselves and us as the investor. Um, and, you know, they have a team that is not pushing them to make bad deals. That is a, uh, a pretty important first step. Um, but for us, you know, a lot of our, uh, partners, you know, they're smaller teams, you know, it's, um, uh, I don't know, three folks, you know, four, two, um, it, they're relatively small shops, you know, they're entrepreneurs, they're out there hustling. I mean, what matters far more, uh, aside from incentives is, you know, their level of experience and are they doing something that they've done before or are they doing something that is you know, brand new and totally out of the box? Because you can have a really great team doing something that they've never done before. Um, and that may, you know, come with it more risk than the guy who, you know, may not have the same credentials, but he's been, you know, fishing in the same pond for 30 years and he knows every street and every corner and owners and, you know, developers or, or, or brokers. Um, and it, it's that latter guy that might come up with the more interesting transaction than the, the more highly pedigreed team. So I think when you're building a product, you know, you're, when you're building, you know, technology, yeah, the team matters because those same, you know, levels of expertise can go any number of different directions. But I guess I think about teams a little bit differently than in, in a re, from a real estate perspective, especially at the size that we're on, where um, what really matters is, is expertise and focus and experience in those markets that matter. And, and alignment, right? That's your point with and incentives. Alignment. Yeah, Incentives, yeah. Why, why are you doing this deal? Are you doing this deal because you need the fee income? Or are you doing this deal because you really believe that it's the right thing to do? Right. Um, and, and how much are you investing? And what are your fees? Are you getting an acquisition fee? Are you getting a disposition fee? Are you getting a development fee? Are you getting a general contractor's fee? And how does all that stack up against the amount of capital that you've got in? Yeah. And I, and I love uh, when a sponsor comes to me and says, I have this acquisition fee, but I don't need the money today. Right. I have it because, you know, there's effort that has gone into this. Um, and so I can I can defer some of the fee. I can structure it differently, but I don't need the fee to pay my mortgage tomorrow. OK, that feels OK. That feels all right. Um, but, yeah, the, the motivations matter. Um, and also, you know, people say, well, you know, what, what do you want to see in a package? Right. And I'm sure you've you've you know given your background. You've seen this a lot. You know, what do you want to see in a package? I just want to know why you want to why you like this deal. You know, you've, you know, if you work with uh, experienced teams in, in markets, uh, they will have looked at dozens and dozens and dozens of deals before they find the one that they bring to you. And so a pretty important question is, well, why? You know, why this one? Why do you like this one? Um, and, you know, the right team can explain that, you know, very succinctly. And if we see the world the same way that they do, which we frequently do, um, then you know that might be a deal we want to do yeah um let's switch over a, a little you know we've been doing a lot of um the sort of facts and figures if you will and in and around the real estate space um moving over to kind of the more personal side and personal performance things like that um let's take on the topic of of daily routines and um you know for me if i can get the day i can get you know, perhaps I can get it all right. And, and I find, um, the world to be full of noise and shiny things that can take my attention away from the objective. Sometimes for me, even just keeping the objective in mind to be very candid, uh, is difficult. And so over the years I've come up with a bunch of routines that, 
I try to employ on a daily basis to kind of get me on target. I wonder um, for you what you may do on a daily basis that you attribute to your success. You've obviously had a really great run with with Henry and the the HG platform, Um, daily routines, rituals, habits, and anything on that side that you attribute to your success. I don't think there's anything in particular. Uh, I would say um, not not losing sight of the details um, and making sure that you have you know, operating partners that also focus on those details. Um, I think that um, you know, from my standpoint, you know, I think as you mentioned at the outset, we do a little bit of it all. You know, um, we had uh, a partner who. Uh, was with us for a long time. And, and he uh, we would say, look, if we were a restaurant, we would uh, you know, set the table, uh, we would cook the food, we would serve the food, we would clean the table after and we would lock up, you know, when the night was over. And that's, that's kind of how it is uh, with us, we kind of do a little bit of it all. And so, you know, you, you tend to, you know, over time, uh, have your focus shift, you know, to, to one thing or another, um, you know, asset management on a particular project that has a challenge, uh, or a new transaction that you're trying to underwrite. Um, so I, I would say from a, from a, uh, you know, a ritual standpoint, I don't really have any rituals. You know, I, I get up in the morning, I go to work. Um, you know, if it's, a, if there's a deal that has to get done, you know, you work on that deal that's in front of you. Um, you know, I think it, it, it does change from time to time, depending on where you are in the cycle. So, you know, as an example, when, um, you know, when the pandemic first hit, you know, I would wake up every morning and, you know, the first thing that I would think about is, okay, where do I need to play defense? You know, what, 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 uh, what projects, um, you know, might have some challenges given the fact that, um, you know, we have this, uh, you know, uncertain environment that we're about to enter. And so a lot of it was just thinking ahead about, you know, what kinds of issues can come up, um, and, and preparing for those unknowns. Um, you know, we had a, uh, you know, a project under construction that you know quite well. And, you know, I kept thinking about, well, what happens if that project is shut down, you know? And so uh, talking to the operating partner about, you know, does our, will our insurance cover loss if for some reason we're shut down? How can we properly secure the site? Where can we, um, you know, where can we store building materials, you know? And as it turned out, we never had to shut it down, but, you know, you, you tend to find, you know, your days thinking about, uh, you know, how to mitigate risks that emerged and, when the pandemic came, there was all of a sudden a whole bunch of potential risks. And so you spent your time, you know, mitigating those risks. Um, and then after, you know, the defense was done being played, then you start thinking about, okay, where's their opportunity? Um, you know, where can I, I uh, move the ball forward in other situations? Um, so uh, again, I don't think there's any real rituals, you know, so it didn't really answer a, a question probably in a way that, that helped, you know, I didn't. No, no, it's I fine. I don't, I don't wake up. I don't wake up at 4 a.m. and uh, and meditate for 12 minutes and then uh, you know have a cup of uh, chai tea or anything like that. It's just you know I put on my uh, put on my work clothes and go and, and try and get things done. Hey, whatever it takes. I mean, we all have our own methodologies here. Um, that notion that I shared with you though of of kind of noise or shiny things. Um, you know, I find the world just full of opportunity. And Tim Ferriss, one of his guests, had um, this notion that like early in your career, you're you're stranded on a desert island and you're you're putting these notes into uh, plastic bottles and sending them out to sea. And, you know, then one bottle comes back and you're just overjoyed. Like, oh, it's, you know, somebody's got the message. And then later in your career, the bottles are just washing up all the time. And so there's a whole new skill set that needs to show up. 
um, and that can be for you guys deal flow, but it, but it can also, I mean, look, I'll just say it this way. I see the world full of opportunity. I find that saying no is actually, uh, curiously and inversely related to my success as opposed to saying yes. It's like, we should make the movie, the no man, as opposed to the yes man. Um, but I wonder for you, do you have any of, of those sort of afflictions with, uh, you know, opportunities, shiny stuff, whether that's even like, I don't, I don't think you're much of a social media guy. Certainly I'm not, but, uh, how do you navigate what I perceive as a deluge of, of opportunity information? Is that, is that something that affects you in the professional sense in terms of managing a day? Yeah, it can. Um, I, I also, uh, you know, agree with you that, you know, saying no is a feature, not a bug. You know, uh, I think Henry is, uh, anybody's heard him speak you know he has a british accent because you know he moved you know from the uk and uh some people uh i think have dubbed him you know sort of dr no um but what i i think what i've found over time uh you know just like you is um you know saying no more often is is better than saying yes more frequently and saying no quickly is is better i think the one thing that i've learned over time and maybe it's just you know experience but early in your career, you know, a deal falls apart and you feel terrible, right? Um, and you kind of do a kind of a, a mental postmortem, you know, what happened and how come it didn't happen? And But I think now I just I sort of shrug my shoulders and go, there's going to be another deal. Uh, it's just a question of, of when it's going to show up, but there's always another deal. Um, yeah, I, I would say that there's, there with respect to, you know, the shiny objects of the day, I mean, the, the internet is um, you know, a wondrous place and lots of things to read. Um, I wish there was a, uh, you know, sort of more curated place to go for information that is interesting to me, uh, other than the internet. I mean, it, it feels like, um, oftentimes it's sort of a fire hose of information. And so you do have to, um, uh, you know, consciously turn it off. You know, I talked to one, uh, sponsor and, uh, I, I think probably more than the internet, it's, it's kind of, you know, emails. Um, and he was saying, you know, how do you, how, how do you deal with your emails? I, I guess, you know, he gets hundreds every day and I go, yeah, I, I get, you know, a lot of emails every day and I've heard people say, oh, you know, e e you know, inbox zero, right? So all these, you know, fancy diagrams and, uh, you know, workflows in order to, to get your inbox down to, to next to nothing. Um, and I think those are, those are good goals. Um, I certainly would like to have fewer emails in my inbox. Uh, but I, I think that, you know, for me, um, you do need to, uh, consciously kind of turn that off. Um, and I don't mean necessarily the email or, or the internet, but you have to, uh, for me at least sometimes say, look, I I'm not going to read the next article that is not applicable to, um, you know, my business. I'm going to actively go out and seek out things that are interesting for my business. Um, and so instead of using the internet as, you know, uh, a fire hose that is you know, coming at you, uh, to, to use the internet as a, a tool where you can dig, you know, deeper for information. Uh, I just get frustrated when I find something that I think is interesting and then they say, Oh, great. That'll be a thousand dollars. And I go, ah, damn, I want free information. I don't want right. good expensive information. Right. Um, but yeah, it's it's a it, it is a challenge to focus. But I find that if you uh, if you come back to you know, the job at hand, which is managing the investments, I think the focus comes. 
you know, what, what asset is this? Okay. What, what is it that I can learn or what is it that I can look at that might change a decision that I might make in the future about that particular property? Um, and, and use that as a starting point as opposed to, you know, just sort of turning on the fire hose. Yeah. Uh, you just mentioned, you know, when a deal falls apart, I don't know if in your mind's eye, that was a deal you're trying to put together and, and something went sideways or it's a deal you've invested in and it's some number of years down the line, but, um, failures happen. Uh, I wonder if you have any favorite failure of yours that might've set you up for, uh, for, you know, a positive learning opportunity, if you will, or, or a later success. And, and maybe, you know, how do you think about failures? I've certainly had a few of my own and they, they tend to be some of the more powerful learning. Yeah. Um, there are failures. There's going to be failures, especially, like I said, in a, in a cyclical environment. Um, I, I guess one of the things that, uh, the t- two things that I've, I've learned over time, uh, one is that, you know, in an economic downturn, um, you know, demand can evaporate overnight. And if the supply picture is uh, not very good, meaning there's too much supply, uh, it just doesn't matter you know, what the, the rent is that you're trying to charge. There's just nobody who wants your particular space. So, you know, one failure that I, I, I have in mind was an office building that uh, was constructed, uh, it was well located, and then, you know, the post-housing crash hit and there was literally no demand. It just didn't matter what rents we were trying to charge. There was just no, no tenant that had any interest. Um, and then you can also go to the other end of the spectrum, um, which was... Uh, you know, an industrial land property in a, in a very tight market. Um, but likewise, despite uh, there being, uh, you know, very, very little supply uh, and presumably, you know, strong demand, um, it did not work. And I think the answer there was uh, depth of demand. So, you know, you kind of have both sides. Number one, you can have a market where you think there's robust demand and that demand evaporates in a downturn. Uh, and if there's too much supply, it's going to take too long for recovery for you to really survive. And then on the other side, you can have situations where it looks like there's a dearth of supply, but if the pool of potential users is too shallow, um, you know, that's where you can run into to problems as well. So I think that's kind of, you know, led me over time to have, uh, I think, a greater respect for uh, supply constrained markets, but also when you think about the ultimate end user for your property, um, to really have a good feel for what the depth of the demand is for the user that you're looking for. And so it's kind of the marriage of those two. And, you know, I, I've, I've, you know, taken lumps over time, um, oftentimes brought on by a downturn. You know, you, you never really know, what is it, Warren Buffett? You don't know who's swimming naked until the, the tide goes out. Right. Um, and so it's been, you know, a couple of those experiences that have kind of really solidified, um, you know, that perspective. And I think um, that has helped us, you know, this time around. Um, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm playing a lot less defense, I think, um, than, uh, you know, I have in, in prior, you know, I say disruptive times. Uh, and I think a lot of that is because of this focus on, you know, supply constrained markets and, and markets where there's deeper demand. Mm-hmm. So um, since you are on the receiving side regularly of investment uh, pitches, uh, whether that's 
through conduits like me on the capital advisory side or direct from uh, operators or developers, um, do you have any, you know, thoughts for, I mean, some of these guys are pros, so they speak your language, they know how to approach you, they know how to, to answer that question, which you just double underscored, which is why this investment, why, why do you want to do this now? I think that's great advice. Um, anything that you, you might want to pass along to that, that group of, you know, whether they're the seasoned pros or, or the early guys that are trying to approach a group like HG Capital and, and land with something that resonates to kind of get an earnest engagement from you and not just get the cell phone swipe to the right and, and delete the, the email or is it left? I guess it's swipe left and, and delete. I don't know. I, I, I think I was married before that, so I don't know which way you swipe. Um, yeah, um, it's a good question. I think, again, that, that the, the key two pieces are why this, why now, um, but also um, for the developer to really understand the risks inherent in their product type and to be able to speak to uh, why those risks have been mitigated or, or don't really exist. And what I've found is that for the partners that really know their craft, they really understand those risks and they have you know, very good answers and they have uh, kind of a deep understanding uh, of what those risks are. And you know, I'll give you a, a, an example. We, we recently closed on an acquisition uh, with a partner um, uh, on a piece of industrial land. And um, you know, th- there does need to be, uh, you know, it, it has proper zoning um, and it also has you know, a cleanup that the seller needs to, to complete from an environmental perspective. Um, and, you know, completing the entitlement process, uh, and understanding the environmental were things that he had absolutely nailed and he had, you know, great representation, great professionals. And so, you know, when we looked at that deal, the, the, the issue wasn't the market. I mean, the market is just phenomenal. Um, the issue is making sure that those risks were, were not meaningful in the grand scheme of things. And by really having a, a firm view on them and, and understanding them and having the right professionals, it gave us confidence that he was thinking about those risks in the appropriate way. So I guess, you know, the one piece of advice that I would give is, you know, pay more attention to mitigating the risks. Um, and yeah, you know, explaining the market, you know, helps, but you can't control the market. Um, you know, the market's going to do what the market's going to do. And you can try to position yourself the best way possible. And you can explain why you're positioning yourself a certain way. Um, but the big thing is, you know, risk mitigation. I mean, that's, that is, um, you know, huge in, in the grand scheme of things. So, you know, if you're a sponsor trying to raise capital, understand why you're doing this deal as opposed to any number of the other dozens and understand how you can mitigate the risks that are inherent in any particular transaction, and and I, I can tell you that if the if you if you call me and the very first answer is we won the bid on this deal, that's that's not a great opening line, <laughs> right? Right. Um, because if we just wanted to go out and buy things at, at uh, you know uh, a market clearing price, we could just go out and do it, right? Just go out and bid on assets. Why not? Um, so there has to be some reason why, um, you know, there's some value that can be created through, you know, the GP's actions. Um, and there, there's always going to be risks inherent in any of those plans and, you know, really understanding how to mitigate those risks, um, is, is important. Yeah, I think it's great advice. Um, 
I, and I think the other thing is probably to the extent they can access, um, well, actually, I'll turn this into a question. Uh, how do you view relationships in terms of uh, it being a uh, quality that that provides better access to you guys? I mean, look, you're you're talking about managing time. You're talking about shutting off emails. You're talking about saying no right. way more than yes. The implications are that there's no lack of deal flow. So how do relationships play into you navigating that ecosystem? I, I imagine that when you have a flag flying that says, we have equity capital, the phone rings. Yeah, it does. Um, and, and when you've stayed in the same space for a long time, you know, the phone rings and, you know, we, we I think have a reputation of doing smaller deals. So the phone rings. Um, what I would say is, you know, on my, on my side, what I, what I try to do, and I, I sometimes fail at it and I recognize that, but I try to give quick uh, no's. Um, but what I tell people is I say, look, um, don't take offense with a quick no. There's a lot of no's before you can get to a yes. Um, and so what, what I tell people is, you know, call me frequently, you know, tell me what it is that you're looking at and I'll give you an honest opinion of, you know, what I think about your overall business plan. Um, I think the um, the challenge for you know uh, a lot of guys is they try to you know everybody I think it's it's human nature you know we try to categorize things right so people try to put us into a box and that's why I, I try to take it you know back up a step and say look don't put us in a box uh, don't think of us as you know industrial apartments and storage guys and that will never touch office we will we will if it's the right opportunity um, so you know I tell people you know don't try to put us into a box. Um, call us frequently. We'll try to give you feedback. We'll try to tell you what we don't like about something. Um, and, you know, over time, you'll get a feel for what we like and what we don't like. Um, and, you know, in some cases, you know, we'll never do a transaction with somebody. And it's not because we don't think they're capable. It's just because there wasn't quite that right fit of, uh, of a deal and an opportunity, uh, you know, at the right time. Um, and then there are other situations where, you know, we'll talk to somebody for years and then they'll finally be something that really, you know, hits and, and does well. And I would say, you know, over time, if, if, you know, we've done one deal with you and we get a good feel for, um, you know, how you operate, um, you're going to get the benefit of the doubt on the next deal because just again, human nature, you have experience and comfort that, um, you know, the sponsor is going to do what they say. Um, and, and that reduces, you know, that kind of sponsorship risk. Um, but yeah, the first deal is always hard, but I would say, you know, communication, you know, happy to get on the phone and have a conversation. Yeah. And I'll tell you, um, from my experience in terms of the, you know, sort of, uh, architecture of sell side versus buy side, right. I'm obviously sell side coming to you with, with opportunities and you, you're the buy side investor. Uh, the exchanges I've had with you over the years and the reasons, this is an interesting thing from the perspective of, of an advisor. I have come up with a very good, uh, you know, sense of an earnest no that's based upon some meaningful thought, and the the feedback is pointed and and should be given some credence, versus a no that's just frankly bullshit and it's an <laughs> excuse. They either don't have money or they don't have bandwidth, or they're they're too lazy to think about something that's you know, on the, the northern shore of Maui and, and, you know, that's just, it's, or it's, they'll say it's outside of, you know, their geographic focus. Look, a lot of them are legitimate no's and, and they're worth hearing. 
but the ones that are thoughtful, um, which is what you've provided for, for the person who's trying to understand the industry, the space, um, what works and what doesn't, I mean, it's sharpening the saw, right? It's, it's pointed feedback. That's insightful. It's something you can take back to the client and say, Hey, you know, they have this concern about a risk that we haven't really addressed. How are we going to address that? And, um, yeah, maybe something else that you can encourage the, I know you talked to both the advisories, you know, kind of broker side and also the principals, but, um, I think there's a lot of opportunity for um, people to take that feedback and just use it. Hey, I got an, well, I'll say it a different way. We often don't go to our best capital sources until at least 12 pitches in. Why? Because I want to hear all the reasons that people say no to a deal so that I've got the answers when I get to number 13, who's really my number one investor. So there's, yeah, there's all this. Sorry to interrupt, but you also get you also have a, a sense over you know making pitches over how many years that you understand what the the questions that people have are, um, and I, I will I'm surprised sometimes at you know some of the simple questions that I ask where some of the the younger sell side um, you know capital seekers don't have answers to and and you know you know why I'm asking the question but they don't and I start scratching my head and go why don't they think this. And that's sometimes uh, a worrying factor where I start saying, wait, these deals are getting done and people didn't ask this one basic question. And and that's sort of a sign of, um, you know, maybe the market getting a little bit out of whack. Um, I also think it's interesting. There are are times in the market where, um, you know, I'll say no to a deal. And, you know, in the back of my head, I'm thinking that deal's not going to get financed. It's never going to happen. Um, and you know, it comes back around and around and around, uh, maybe three different sponsors and maybe with a lower and lower price. And eventually it makes sense. And then there are times, and this feels like one of those, the, the second times where you say no to a deal and in the back of your mind, you're going, oh yeah, somebody will do that deal. Um, you know, you may not think it makes any sense, but somebody will do it. And I kind of feel like that's where we are today, but yeah, I think you're dead on right. Um, you know, understand the kinds of questions that can come at you, um, and be prepared to answer them. And, you know, some of the simpler questions, um, it just, it just shocks me sometimes that some of the simple questions, you know, can't be answered, um, quickly. And then that always is somewhat of a concern. Yeah. Well, look, Andrew, we're on a kind of holiday week, if you will, you've been very generous with your time as we move to wrap it up. I wonder, do you want to share the, the HG website or any sort of contact information that might, um, allow people to, I mean, Google works pretty well. They could all find yeah. you, I'm sure. But if there's anything you want to share, feel free. Yeah. I mean, I think the easiest way for people to get a hold of me is uh, by email. Uh, and they can find that email on our website, which is www.hgre.com. So Hotel Golf Roger Echo. Um, it's a, uh, you know, it's not the flashiest website. Um, we're trying to, to fit somewhere between uh, you know, Blackstone and Berkshire Hathaway. Um, but you know, you can get to kind of who our team is. And I think our emails, uh, kind of right under our name, but, uh, it gives you a little bit of a sense of, uh, you know, who we are, where we came from. But yeah, if people have, um, you know, questions, uh, feel free to reach out, uh, you know, happy to give you, uh, you know, feedback on a deal and answer any questions, other questions you might have. Cool. Anything else you want to, uh, add? I mean, just give you the floor here. If there's anything that kind of, no, I don't, I don't think so. Um, you know, 
I ramble at times, but um, the only thing I guess I would, I would, you know, finish on is, you know, a lot of these questions there's, you know, that you've asked about, you know, capital markets and um, uh, debt markets, uh, you know, where the real estate markets are going. And I guess the last thing that I would, you know, kind of leave with people is there is no quote unquote broad real estate market. You know, every deal is different. Every city is different. Every product type is different. Uh, and so, you know, really, uh, you know, dialing in and understanding, you know, why this street, why this asset, why this product type, you know, really matters because, like I said, there's not there's not a national real estate market, even though, you know, the media likes to portray it that way. There, it's really deal by deal. And so, you know, understanding, you know, your market, understanding your product type, understanding your location. Uh, is is really key to, to being successful. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, look, um, to you, thank you for joining the podcast. To all the listeners, thanks for sticking with us. Uh, I appreciate the time, Andrew. I, I always appreciate your thoughts and insight and uh, look forward to the continued conversations over the years. Sounds good, Kevin. I appreciate you having me. All right, take care.